Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or in memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Today's episode has been dedicated in memory of Israel Ben Yitzchak Viliba by his daughter Sharon Fogel in honor of his ninth yard site on the 16th of Tammuz. Eddie Zipperstein, as he was known to most, was a wonderful, sensitive man dedicated to Jewish life and scholarship and was a pillar of the Los Angeles community for decades. Welcome back to Matan's one-on-one podcast. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea in that week's Parsha. Parshat Matot is comprised of three clear topical sections. First, it opens with the laws of oaths with particular focus on how they operate differently for women. It then continues with the war against Midian, which is a fulfillment of the commandment to wage it several chapters earlier in chapter 25. From this war, we ultimately learn many laws concerning vessel purity and impurity, as well as the Torah's approach to spoils of war. Today's episode will focus on Eleazar's role in this war's execution. The third and final section of the Parsha focuses on the request of Reuven and God to remain in the Transjordan. They conduct a tense dialogue with Moshe and eventually reach a compromise agreed upon by both sides. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with a returning guest from a prior series before we began speaking about Parshat Shavua, Rabbanit Sarala Razim, who founded and headed Shaila, Matan's Women's Halachic Responsa Online, where she currently writes and edits answers to halachic questions in all fields of halacha. She is a graduate of Matan's Advanced Talmud Institute and headed Metifta, Matan's Advanced Talmud Program. Rabbanit Sarala is also a certified rabbinic arbitrator and holds a certificate in mediation for family conflict resolution from the Israeli Center for Negotiation and Mediation. In the next few weeks, Sarala will be starting a new initiative, heading the first Halakha B'Yun online track at the London School of Jewish Studies. She is also a member of Beit Hillel, where she's active in the organization's program for female religious leadership. Sarala, it's great to have you here. Lovely to be here, Sefa. Thanks for inviting me to discuss Torah Shebichtav this time. Great, and I'm sure that all of our conversations ultimately lead towards Torah Shebalpeh, which is one of the reasons why I've, I want you on here, because I love that other perspective. So let's jump right into the war against Midian in chapter 31 in this week's Parashah. Where, where would you like to take us there? I would like to take us to the, actually to the confusing point of the onset of the war, where Moshe Rabbeinu is instructed by Kodesh Baruch Hu to wage war against the people who have received him when he was fleeing Mitzrayim, and the discomfort Moshe feels about waging war against the Midianites, even though Chazal say that Itro was Kohen Midian, but he was um, basically not accepted by his own people any longer upon meeting Moshe Rabbeinu, Nonetheless, they were the ones to accept Moshe. He married one of the women. And here we we start with a confusion that the Ramban points out. If we read the first Psukim, Kodesh Baruch Hu instructs Moshe, Nekom nikmat b'nei Israel me'et ha-midyanim. It's actually very personal instruction. You shall be the one avenging, taking revenge for Am Israel from the Midianites, and this will be 
the final thing you're going to, to do upon this earth before you die. And Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't hesitate. He immediately goes out to the people. You should immediately take people who are worthy to go to this war, to go to the army. You should be giving the Nikmat Hashem. HaKadosh Baruch instructed Moshe Rabbeinu, Nikmat Bnei Israel. You should avenge the Nekama of Bnei Israel, and Moshe Rabbeinu reverses that. And he instructs Am Yisrael, Nikmat Hashem. So the Ramban points out there is an element of confusion here. And the Ramban on, on Pasuk Vav says the following, Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu did not instruct the people, the warriors, what they should be doing when they wage war. He only instructed them to avenge a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And what does it mean to avenge a Kodesh Baruch Hu, to, to, to be giving revenge of a Kodesh Baruch Hu with the Midianites? And for Moshe Rabbeinu, it was very clear the meaning of what he had instructed them to do. He thought that they were going to understand that similarly to how we understand uh killing off the Amalekim, right? Not leaving every single one of them. This is Nikmat Hashem. This is how, when a Kodesh Baruch Hu wages war, this is how he goes about it. But people are different. People would not do things that are of this nature. They would leave some of the people alive. They would not make sure that everybody is dead. And Moshe Rabbeinu was upset when people did not understand what he meant. And the Ramban points out, He was very angry when they came back. And he was honoring Pinchas while he was being angry with the people, with the warriors. And why am I opening with this? Because when we see later that Elazar Kohen takes the leadership into his own hands and he's instructing the warriors how to get rid of their impurity, how to purify themselves in order to enable them to get back to Machane Israel, we have to understand why Chazal deem it as something wrong that he was doing. He was a misplaced leader at the wrong time. And we have two ways of understanding why Elazar did it and what was the approach towards him taking the leadership and instructing, giving very clear instructions to the warriors of how to get back from the battlefield into Machane Israel? Was he right in doing so? Was he wrong? Okay, so if I could just recap of what we've set up until now, is that you open with this sort of psychological insight, which is brought up also in Chazal, of the fact that it might be that Moshe is coming into this war with a conflicted inner state. We won't really ever know. We can know. But it might be that he's coming in with a conflicted inner state because he has to wage war against people who helped him from the people from whom his wife is from, their her nation. Um, and then you continue with the Ramban, who is basically highlighting a challenge in the Psukim, which is that Moshe doesn't really give many clear instructions for this war. 
Uh, and then the people follow what seems to be intuitive to them. I'll also just add that behind this discussion, which we're not going to get at today, is the general moral question about wars or intention of war to wipe out a whole nation. These are things which still, I'll say, teaching younger students is still of the hardest sections of the Torah, whether it's the example of Midian or Amalek or, you know, most of Sefer Yoshua. In general, the questions, the questions exactly, the questions of war are, are complex. And it seems perhaps that according to Moshe, the instructions were clear, but for the people, they were less clear. And this comes up in so many places. I'm thinking about Shaul and Melchemat Amalek, where there he was given specific instructions and he doesn't follow them. But there also seems to be an intuition that we see from Am Yisrael that they don't want to kill off all people. I mean, it seems that whether the instructions are clear or not, they they themselves have a hard time with that. So that's sort of like a little moral piece that's behind all of this. Right. I will add yet another Another um, angle to this, that the Psuki mentioned that nobody died in this war. So there was no reason for the warriors to think that they were doing something wrong and that they were not following instructions because they felt HaKadosh Baruch Hu was with them, right? And when they come back and Moshe Rabbeinu is angry, I think this is where Elazar Kohen is sensing that there is some kind of misunderstanding on Moshe's part as to what the warriors were doing and how they were carrying out this war in a way that seemed to them and seemed klapesh maya that it was a very successful war. Yeah, so that sort of adds to this general confusion about about what's happening. And so this conflicted space of Moshe, and that leads us to the question of Elazar in the war, yes? Right, so the warriors come back and they are impure because they are being busy killing people, obviously, and bringing back booty, which also includes vessels, that some of them are Tmei Met, some of them, I mean, all of them are not kosher vessels, and... Elazar ventures to explain to the people how to purify themselves from, first of all, Tumat Met, right, from the impurity of the dead. And uh, the Ibenezer and the Chizkuni all write that Elazar Kohen was instructed with the laws of Para Aduma. He understood that it was his turn to turn to the people and instruct them how to make themselves pure in order to enable them to get back to Machane Israel. But he went further than that, and he instructed them how to get the non-kosher vessels, how to do Hagala, how to do Achsharat Keilim, right? How do, we, how do we make all the vessels that they brought kosher? And this is when Chazal um, point out that this is something that he was not supposed to do. If he was entrusted with the laws of Paraduma, he should have kept to Paraduma, and he shouldn't have gone further to the laws of how to make the vessels kosher. And Chazal understand that this was due to the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu was angry, and this is not the first time that Elazar sees his uncle, right, getting angry. And forgetting halachot, there are two more times when it happened in the past. And he understands that it is his role to step in and instruct the people with the uh, halacha. Let me just put in one piece before you continue, which is for all those who don't have the pleasure of having a Tanakh in front of them. In verse 
13 in chapter 31. Moshe and Elazar appear as a pair. Okay, they all go out to greet everyone coming back. It's Moshe, Elazar, and all of the Nasi'im. And then in the next section, in verse 21, it just says, It's just Elazar speaking himself. And right. then in the next section, Hashem speaks to Moshe and there are further instructions given. There is something surprising in all of a sudden this like solo appearance of Elazar. And Elazar, as you said, is only two places in the entire Torah where we have the phrase Zot Chukata Torah and that other place is by Paraduma where Elazar is also instructed to be involved. So all the Parshanim and Chazal, they connect these two places and say that Elazar clearly, you know, he had a, his hat was dealing with purity and impurity. But the question becomes, why is it that Elazar all of a sudden is instructing things on his own. I'll just say, Cyril, interesting enough that the Shomroni Torah feels so uncomfortable with this verse that it actually adds a pasuk that says that Moshe taught Elazar what to say, meaning they were just like Chazal, that they're, you know, very up in arms about the fact that this, I mean, before Chazal, that they were up in arms about the fact that Elazar is speaking on his own, but all this is just to highlight the fact that there's something unusual going on here and that we should draw attention to that. So with that sort of picture of the main players in this war, I think that's a little bit more of an introduction to the way that Chazal look at Elazar and ultimately kind of criticize him. Right, and I want to say something to the benefit of Moshe Rabbeinu. Perhaps Moshe Rabbeinu, from his past experience and the fact that he was denied entry into Eretz Israel because, of, because he got angry, he basically um, was trying to keep away from the people keep himself afar from the people so he doesn't get himself even more angry and and he kind of stepped back. But the question is whether Elazar should have respected this distance that Moshe was trying to create and not stepped in instead of him. But Elazar was trying to help bring the people back into Machane Israel and they really didn't have time to lose. And as I said before, People were looking at it as a very successful war. It was perhaps wrong to keep them waiting, not to enable them to go back to their families, to go back to their normal lives after the success they had. And um, I want to develop further the question of authority and perhaps the, conf- the confusion that exists uh, within Aharon's family, Aharon himself, and his sons as to what are the limits of their authority when they're basically standing with Moshe Rabbeinu or standing alone, okay? Mm-hmm. So we have in Masechet Eruvin a long agadita about the initial Beit Midrash, the first Beit Midrash of Moshe Rabbeinu and how the Torah was taught to the people. And the agadita tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu was basically teaching everything four times, meaning every halacha that he was taught from the gvura, from HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself, so to speak, he had to teach four times. So first he teaches Aharon, and then enter the two sons of Aharon that remained alive, right? Elazar and Itamar, and they and Aharon together hear it all over again. Then come in the Azkenim, and Moshe Rabbeinu teaches them and the two sons of Aaron, and Aaron himself, the uh, third time. And then the people of Israel walk in, and Moshe Rabbeinu teaches everybody the fourth time. 
And it is very important for the Gemara to note that even though we could have simplified things and just let Aharon teach his sons, and then the sons could have taught Zikne Israel, and then Zikne Israel could have taught the people, why were we troubling Moshe Rabbeinu to be teaching the same halacha four times? Because it is very important that everybody should hear from the first source, Moshe Rabbeinu heard Mipi Gvura. It is not the same listening to teachings, to instructions of Torah, when you hear it from somebody who heard it from the mouth of God, so to speak. And it was important to Moshe Rabbeinu. It's not that he was instructed by HaKadosh Baruch Hu to be teaching this way, but it was important for him that people should hear it from his own mouth because he heard it straight from the source. And he didn't worry about troubling himself with, uh, with so much, um, you know, do- doing so much work and teaching so many times. So that leaves space to, for us to consider how did Aharon and his sons deem themselves? Obviously, they understand that they are also in charge of teaching Torah to Am Israel, Because once Moshe Rabbeinu teaches it for the fourth time, then he leaves the tent. And Aharon teaches it, and Aharon leaves, and then the two sons teach it, and then they leave. And then the Skenim teach it, and then they leave. And everybody gets to hear everything four times. So it's obvious that they understand they have a role in the instruction of Torah, not only in serving in the Mishkan, right, doing what the Kohanim are supposed to do, but also they are the teachers of the Torah itself which makes us understand why Elazar saw it his job to come and instruct the people how to get back into Machane Israel. You no, know, it's just interesting because one of, I don't remember anymore who, but one of the commentators says very clearly that, well, if, and it fits perfectly with this uh, Garata, says if Elazar gave instructions to Am Yisrael, it's obviously because Moshe had already taught him what to say. Meaning he clearly was repeating something that Moshe had taught him, but for whatever reason, now he's the he's the main speaker. But it's not because he was making up this Torah, it's because it was something that he was taught by Moshe, which to me would also be sort of the simpler way to, to deal with the with this question. But uh, but I obviously understand that this really opens up a much bigger opening for much deeper questions about about authority, about what happens, you know, what happens after Moshe uh, I'm just imagining having to teach the same thing four times in a day and I'm getting dizzy. But uh, <laughs> yes. Maybe if you've heard it, right. you will have the, uh, have the, the strength and times. the energy. Exactly, exactly. We cannot really fathom what it was, this personality of Moshe Rabbeinu, what type of energy it held. But that's for another podcast about yes. um, can Moshe Rabbeinu be a role model for anything? Because he's just different. I want to home in on, on what you had said. What you had said about uh, that it was obvious that Elazar knew the halacha because Moshe Rabbeinu already taught him that. In another instance, where Moshe Rabbeinu forgets the halacha, and I'm allowing myself to say that because this is clearly in the psukim and Rashi points it out is upon the tragedy of the loss of the two sons of. Aharon, right? So we have in Vayikra, Perekyud, Pasuk Yutet, when Moshe Rabbeinu gets really 
furious with his brother about not eating the chatat and he thinking that they had misdealt with the chatat, which is, was chatat of Korban eh, Rosh Chodesh, which is supposed to be a kapara, an atonement for the people. So Moshe Rabbeinu was afraid that they mistreated the Korban and they parceled the Korban and he gets angry with Aharon and Aharon answers him. And he says, no, you're wrong. I was not supposed to eat it. And then Rashi asks himself, why didn't Elalazar answer? Why is it Aharon answering? And it's a kind of funny question, you know, why is Rashi asking that? Why would Elazar answer? And he says the following. First of all, Moshe Rabbeinu turned in anger, not to his brother Aharon, but to the two remaining sons, Elazar Tamar. Could, it was out of respect to his brother Aharon, and I would add even further, not only respect, but understanding the deep grief that his brother was in, right? This is not the time to be angry with him. So he turns to the siblings, and he, he's basically shouting at them. Amru, so Elazar and Itamar, Rashi says, quotes the Midrash, they chose to keep quiet because it is not badin, this is not the right way for our father to sit in mourning and we should be speaking on his behalf. And so too we should not be answering Moshe Rabbeinu, our great teacher. It is not our role to answer him. Meaning Moshe Rabbeinu had taught them the halacha they know the halacha very clearly, but here in this instance, they choose to remain quiet. Is it because Elazar did not know the halacha? Is this why he kept quiet? Talmud Lomar, and then Rashi brings the Pasuk in our case with Milchemet Midian. No, Elazar is well versed. He knows the halachot very well. He listens when he sits in the Beit Midrash of Moshe Rabbeinu. He knows exactly what to do. But with the instance of losing his, his two brothers, he chooses to remain quiet. And this is one Moshe Rabbeinu, out of his own sadness and grief, basically forgets the Hilchot Chatat Rosh Chodesh, but he chooses not to say anything. While here, he takes the reins of leadership to his hands and he instructs the people halachically. So we can say 39 years have elapsed, okay? Mm-hmm. Elazar yeah. deems himself to be somewhere else than when he was as a young man. That's A. His father is dead. He is now the Kohen Gadol instead of his father. And this might explain why he thinks it's his job to take the reins of leadership because he knows that Moshe Rabbeinu will not be entering the land. And maybe Elazar understands that he's supposed to show the people that they are not left without clear leadership and clear instructions as to how to lead both their social life and halachic lives. And he understands that it's his job. And I want to read a few Midrashic sources about how Chazal approach Elazar instructing the halacha. They don't have a problem with Elazar teaching the halachot the only problem they have is that Moshe, they understand Moshe to be standing there. 
and Elazar teaching them instead of Moshe. It's not that Moshe Rabbeinu went back home to his tent. Moshe Rabbeinu is standing there, but he's not telling them what is the way to purify themselves. You can just picture it, right? All the warriors have come back with all the booty and some of the people that they have taken as hostages and, and as shvuim. And they're all standing there waiting. Well, what now? And Moshe Rabbeinu gets angry at them. And there's silence. They don't know what to do. And Elazar understands that it's his job to tell the people how to get in. So we meet two approaches in Chazal to the freedom Elazar took to himself to instruct them halachically. In the Yerushalmi Masechet Gittin, Perek Aleph Al-Chabet, it says in the name of Rabbi Eliezer that Nadava Avihu died because they instructed halacha lifnei Moshe Rabban. We don't have the instance of where they did that, but obviously according to Rabbi Eliezer's opinion, Elazar Kohen knows that it's very dangerous to do what he's doing, and nonetheless he's venturing on doing it. And the question is why he's doing it, and perhaps the Sifri in Bamidbar will brings us the other approach of Chazal can shed light into his, into his motivation. And the Sifri says the following, V'yeshumrim, Moshe natan lo reshut. Obviously, you can't assume that Elazar did it without asking permission from Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu instructed him to do so. Because since we are in a transitional moment when Moshe Rabbeinu is about to die and he's giving over the leadership to the next generation and when he dies and he's not there to teach, people should not turn to Elazar once Moshe is dead when Moshe Rabbeinu was, was alive, you didn't dare speak up. Why do you deem it your position to talk now and to instruct us now? So these two different approaches to what Elazar Kohen was doing are remaining in Chazal that are not decided upon for the very simple reason that these questions are going to move on to the next generations forever to halachic decision-making, right? When do we feel we can move? There is a transition point from one way of treating things to another, to introducing new roots of halachic thinking. And I would want to end with a very curious story that takes place in Bavel, in the, um, in the basin of Rav. Rav sits, he's, he's the Dayan, and in comes uh, a moister, somebody who was planning to give over a Jew to the uh, Babylonian authorities. And Rav Kahana, who sits in the basin, gets up and kills the moister. And Rav says to him, you have misplaced your authority. You have to go now to Eretz Israel and sit in the Beit Midrash of Rabbi Yochanan. 
And what I want you to do is to sit at the very back row, the seventh row, where the weakest uh, Talmidim sit. I wish I was one of the weakest Talmidim in the Beit Midrash of Rabbi, of Rabbi Yochanan. Yes, let's just get things into proportion. And you should sit there and keep your mouth closed for seven whole years. You're not supposed to answer. You're not supposed to be mechadesh anything. You're just supposed to sit there and listen to Rabbi Yochanan. And obviously, Rav Kahana, when he gets there, he, he doesn't manage to, to, to keep himself quiet and he gets into trouble. And there's a very strange ending to this story. But what we can see is that this dilemma of how much freedom to give to the next generation to take decisions into their own hands. And on the other hand, to teach oneself to sit there and listen to the elders, to sit there and, and listen to the uh, authority of the previous generation. This is an ongoing question which was never solved. And I don't think that Chazal have any interest in solving it. It is not a problem. It is the very engine that drives the world of halakha, that drives the world of decision-making on. This is what keeps it vibrant, right? We are always at a transitional moment. Yeah, we know it, it presents authority as something that is fraught with tension. I think that's what Chazal are, are trying to do here. We also have to be aware that there's the text of Tanakh, and we're, we've been bringing a very strong prism of Chazal, but that strong prism of Chazal brings with it the tensions that exist within the world of Chazal. Uh, and sometimes those are clearly reflected in the Psukim, and sometimes they're less reflected in the Psukim. I think that everything we've brought right now is very insightful. Uh, it's very insightful in that it picks up on tensions that aren't spoken outright in the Torah. Uh, Elazar is that figure who shows up at rough moments, uh, whether it's the death of Navdav and Avihu, meaning he's, he's the, the person who steps in, in moments where, as you said earlier, Moshe was sometimes not there fully, perhaps intentionally in this particular case or unintentionally uh, previously in, in the, in the story of Navdav and Avihu. So Elazar sort of becomes like this paradigm of that person who has to make these decisions about their own authority. And sometimes it's going to work out well, and sometimes it's going to be an overstepping of boundaries. And those I feel like are the two positions that Chazal bring. Elazar becomes this prototype of, of the student. When does the student become the teacher, right? When is that moment when you can assume that authority and it not be overstepping a boundary? And I think that for Chazal creating the system that they were that they were living and creating, that, as you said, is the crux of, of the dilemma of when do you innovate? When do you continue? When do you know that you're allowed to innovate? Uh, and I think that I can definitely just speak as, as a teacher, which is obviously a much, much lower level than anything we've been speaking about here today, that moment when you can say to yourself, yeah, I think that was my chidush, right? I think that was my addition. Or that moment where you could say, in my halachakat, I'll say, where I'll, you know, help with the halachic decision and sometimes internally i know that it's like a little bit of a leap of authority you know and and i know that i have to trust that i've been invested with it or that i trust myself to know when i have to ask questions but that dilemma or that tension really it's not a dilemma that tension 
exists in anybody who is in a position of authority. When right. sometimes in order to be an authoritative person, you have to assume responsibility. Yeah. You know, when, when dealing with, with Shaila, one of the Shailas who were asked was basically a Shaila about Lametet Melachot Shil Shabbat, the 39 Melachot of Shabbat. And one of the Rabbeim in the Hilchata program said to me, I'm not going to deal with, with this Shaila because it has to do with Gufei Torah, right? The very questions of what's forbidden in Shabbat and what's allowed on Shabbat. And I keep myself away from dealing with such questions, which I found very strange. And I stepped in and I said, yes, but if we ask this question, we're supposed to come up with an answer. I'm going to sit down and write a tshuva about it. And he said, you know, I'm very happy that you don't feel uh, hesitant to deal with the question. You don't deem it necessary to keep away from this type of question. And while I would simply uh, stay away from questions of this type. So this was a very interesting conversation between us as to where he did not want to step in. And I said, but you have to give an answer to somebody who asks you a Shaila and Hilchot Shabbat. And one last point is what kind of an instruction do you give your children? You know that Pinchas ben Elazara Cohen, he's the one to jump up and to say, that you're supposed to kill a person, right? You're supposed to kill a person who is who is um, having sexual relations with a non-Jewish woman. And then we see that Moshe Rabbein was happy for him to be doing it. And when we understand the background of Pinchas, the household that he grows up in, which having Elazar Cohen as his father, we understand why he ventured to do so. Right? And there he gets a Nishikoyach by Moshe Rabbeinu. So all these tensions, as you had said, are in the Psukim, and Chazal find echoes of their own struggles, of their own questions, in the Torah Shebichtav, then translating it into the Torah Shebe'alpeh. Cyril, I want to thank you for this conversation today, uh, for, for sort of bringing in these, uh, the questions regarding the parasha, but of course how they deeply relate to the lives of anybody uh, today, certainly those with halachic authority, and certainly those who are in charge of continuing halachic authority, which is most of us today as well. So thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure and a real gift for me to discuss with you, Parashat Matot. Thank you, Yosefa. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do One-on-One and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.